Today we move on with our series in faith practices talking about justice and mercy and how justice and mercy work as a faith practice. Now, I have to admit to you that I had to think about this one for quite a while. And I think the reason I had to do that is because throughout the years, I've read several books on faith practices or spiritual disciplines, those holy habits that we do, things like prayer and reading scripture and worship and all of those things. And I've read a lot of those resources. In fact, I was just chatting on the way in with someone who, remembering the classic work on it from Richard Foster, Celebration of Discipline. So it's not a new subject in some ways. But this is the first time I think I've had to consider what justice and mercy look like as a faith practice. I've never really encountered that before in any of the other literature that I've looked at. How justice and mercy are a faith practice, a spiritual discipline. I I guess in some ways I've always thought of them more as virtues that we respond to God in that way or that God demonstrates in how he reveals himself to us. But what does it mean for justice and mercy to be faith practices? Well, here's the weekly reminder as we go through that. The reason why we're doing this series in the first place, that this is about discipleship. That we, God's people, are called to be disciples, people who follow Jesus. And discipleship is not an on or off thing but it's something that we grow deeper and deeper into. So the question here is not whether or not you are a disciple of Jesus. It's not if you are or if you are not. The question is, are we becoming better disciples? That's the word we've been using all summer as we go through this. Better. That faith practices, spiritual disciplines, these habits that we're picking up, they are designed to make us, to help to make us better disciples. And who wouldn't want that if you're a follower of Jesus? If you're a person who says, yes, Jesus is the Lord of my life, why would you not then want to say, how can I be the best I can be at following Jesus? Help me to be a better disciple. That's what this is about. So today then, and then in the practices that we look at for this coming week, the idea of how justice and mercy act as habits that help us be better disciples and what that looks like. Now, maybe when you think of things like justice and mercy, you don't think of faith habits right away. Or, or maybe, I mean, with a word like justice, we don't always associate that with even necessarily being something spiritual or religious. We use that term, justice, in a whole other sphere of our life, or often we refer to it that way. We think of justice as something that happens in the area of a court of law. The courts are where justice takes place. So when you think of justice, maybe you think of courtrooms and lawyers and judges and juries and, and that kind of thing. And we use some of that language around justice as well, right? That whole branch of government that deals with it is called the Justice Department. Or those who are judges on the Supreme Court are called justices. So we 
Sometimes I think maybe our brain goes more to that civil side of where justice is. That's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, I think that's going to be rather helpful for us as we look at this today. And here's the reason why, because in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, that the law of God was also their civil law, their law together. And so the people who served as the religious leaders were also the people who, in effect, served as their justice keepers, their lawyers, their judges. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, when you see Jesus interacting with the groups of people that in the Gospels are referred to as the scribes and the Pharisees and the experts in the law, these are the people in Israel's society who, respons- who are responsible for holding and maintaining justice. It was the religious people who did that in the Bible times and in the time of Jesus. So maybe that's not out of bounds for us to think of justice and associate it with those kinds of things. And in fact, it's helpful to even see some of Scripture that way. That there are many psalms where God's people cry out for help to God, and and we see it as a psalm of crying out to God, but really the language there is a lawsuit. That God's people in the psalms file a lawsuit against God. A lawsuit that says, God, you've promised to do these things, and we're waiting for you to do them. Where is our justice? Because God, you said you would. Many of the psalms function that way. It works the other way around, too, and you see that in the prophets. That so many of the passages about the prophets are really passages that we could see as a lawsuit. That God is filing a lawsuit against his people, saying, People, I've given you these commands and these laws, and you have not kept them. Now I'm filing charges against you because of it. Covenant lawsuits that you see in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. That's helpful. In fact, that's a good way for us to look at what we're going to see today that comes from the prophet Micah. It's from the prophets. So in Micah, the passage that we're going to look at, I want us to read this passage as though it were a lawsuit. Because in fact, that is exactly what it is. Before I open that up, before we read that together, would you join me in a word of prayer? Let's pray. God, we're about to open your holy scriptures and we declare and we profess that these are your words, that you have inspired people to write these down so that what you have revealed about yourself may endure in that revelation to us. So we pray that as we read this today, would your Holy Spirit fill our hearts so that we not only see words on a page but we hear the voice of your Spirit speaking to our hearts. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, the prophet Micah, chapter 6. The verse that I'm going to end with is a verse that may be familiar to many people. Micah, chapter 6. I'm going to begin. It begins at verse 3, but, but I want to give you the introduction that shows us the lawsuit around this, Okay. The introduction around this. So, so the first two verses that, aren't, that are not included 
here's how the passage begins. It says, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. My case, it's a lawsuit. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusations. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. That's the introduction. A lawsuit is coming here. Now, I'll, I'll put on the screen not the words of this, but I want us to see how these verses work as a lawsuit. Because uh, if you know anything about a court of law, you know how maybe lawsuits work then. The prosecution brings the charges. There's a plaintiff. God is the plaintiff here. I know often we think of God as the judge, but did you hear those words that I just read in the introduction? God is calling for the earth itself to be the judge and jury. Listen, you mountains. Hear, you mountains, the foundations of the earth. The earth will be the judge and the jury. God is the plaintiff. God is the one bringing the charges. That's what's happening. And we'll see that in verses 3 through 5. And then there's a response by the defense. The defense responds. And then there's a verdict. Um, we don't, in the passage that we're looking at today, get the sentence. Verdict and sentence are not the same thing. We don't see what the sentence is. We just hear the verdict, the judgment. Okay? So, first, the prosecution, beginning at verse 3. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal. Those are both regions uh, in Egypt in the wilderness. So it's a reminder of the exodus in the time of the wilderness that took place. That you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. The prosecution rests. The defense, beginning with verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The defense rests. And it's an extravagant defense. More than any one person can do. A defense that says, God, even if I gave you everything, would that not be enough? The verdict. Verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. And to love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. 
Court is in session. There's a covenant lawsuit that's been filed here. And a verdict that has been given. So we're focusing today on this idea of justice and mercy. I, I want us to hone in then on, well, just those last words from that last verse, the end of verse 8. The thing that God requires to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And, and because we're going to focus in on just those things, I, we've got time to be a little bit nitpicky about how we do that. And uh, I love the nuances of the Hebrew language, that when you understand some of the Hebrew, it opens up so much of the meaning behind these words. So we'll pay attention to that because we're just looking at one part of one verse here today to see how this plays out as the idea of justice and mercy being faith habits that make us better disciples of Jesus and how that plays forward for us, okay? So how does that take place when we see this? Now, the first thing I want to point out is that uh, we should not look at this as though it were a list of three things. These aren't bullet points. Well, how do you do what God requires? Well, there's three things here, right? Um, Item number one, act justly. Item number two, love mercy. Item number three, walk humbly with your God. Let me give a little explanation around that. Now, the first two things on that list, the justice and the mercy, those things are separated by a conjunction that makes them a list. The third thing, walking humbly with your God, that's connected by a different kind of conjunction that makes it a relative clause. Maybe that just went right over your head. Let me explain what I mean by that. That third thing, that thing about walking humbly with your God, is a qualifier that's relative to the first two things. How is it that you walk humbly with your God? How are we to be people who walk humbly with God? Well, you walk humbly with God by acting justly and loving mercy. Or think of it the other way around. The way, when you are a person, when you are a person who truly figures out how to act justly and how to love mercy, the result is that you will be a person who walks humbly with your God. Do you see the connection there? It's not a list of one and two and three. It's, I'm going to give you two things, and if you do those two things as God has prescribed, three will be the result will happen because of it, that you will walk humbly with your God. Even that, let me explain a little bit of what that means, to walk humbly with your God. Now, now the word walk in Hebrew, it's the word halak, and, and it means, I mean, it is translated as walk, as in actual physical walking, but in Hebrew language, it also refers to a long relationship. So a long and enduring relationship is also considered to be a walk. They use the same word to describe that. That's what's being referred to here by walking with God. That it refers to a long-lasting relationship. And it's a long-lasting relationship that endures by doing it humbly. We find the word humble in several places in the Old Testament several of those places in the Psalms, but there's something unique here, that the Hebrew word in this verse that's translated as humble or humbly, it is the only place in the entire Hebrew Bible 
where this one particular word is used. It's the word tsasana, and you pronounce both the T and the S together there. Tsana, which is translated as humbly, but this is the only place in the whole Bible that word is ever used, which means it becomes a little difficult to translate because there's no other points of reference. It's not, contextually, you cannot put it with any other passages in all of Scripture. So the only thing translators can do is look at other ancient Hebrew writings to try to figure out what does this word actually mean. And the word in context of other writings outside of the Bible often refers to things that are careful, wise, thoughtful, prudent. That's a good way of understanding this. This idea that God is giving a verdict, a verdict that says, here's what I'm going to tell you to do, and you do those things, and the result is that you will be a person who has a long-standing relationship that is carefully, wisely, thoughtfully, prudently carried out. That our long relationship with God requires that careful attention to be done the way that God has revealed and desired and called for us to do that with him. You get the idea? That's what the result is after here. That's the end result that the prophet is pointing towards. And the way to get there, the way to do that, the way that the verdict comes down, you know what? He says, forget about all those offerings. That's not what gets you there. And it's the reference to all the Old Testament laws that they had, right? In the Old Testament, the way that you were a religious person who comes before God was to come before God with offerings. That's all what those Old Testament laws were about. In coming to the temple, coming before and bringing to the priests all of the offerings that were required. So think about it in terms of all those religious requirements that maybe get in the way. All those things that we try to do to check off all the boxes of what it means to be a religious person. All those things don't amount to anything at all if we ignore justice and mercy. That's the verdict. Because it's living as people who are just and merciful that we find those careful, wise, thoughtful steps of a relationship with God. So let's keep working backwards through this. Let's deal, first of all, with mercy. What does that mean? So, so what does the Bible mean by mercy? What does it mean for us to be people who love mercy? I'll give you a little more Hebrew here, okay? It's the Hebrew word hesed. And this word, hesed, um, it's not the one and only time in the Bible. In fact, in all of the Old Testament Hebrew literature, the word hesed shows up 245 times. So it's all over the place in the Hebrew Old Testament. And it's translated in the Hebrew Old Testament in different ways. It's referred to as loving kindness, steadfast loyalty, covenant faithfulness. <clears throat> you think of maybe a familiar passage like Lamentations 3. Lamentations 3, which talks about 
God's faithfulness, because of your great faithfulness, we are not consumed, because of your great love, chesed. Because of your loving kindness, chesed. That's the Hebrew word chesed. But let me point this out, because even though it occurs 245 times in the Hebrew Bible, most of those times, it is a word that is used in reference to God. It is God who demonstrates and displays chesed, loving kindness, steadfast loyalty, covenant faithfulness. God is the one who exemplifies this. It is much more rare in the Bible to find examples when chesed is something that's used to describe the people. But this is one of them. This is one of those rare occasions in Scripture where this idea of loving kindness, steadfast loyalty, covenant faithfulness, those things that over and over are attributed to God, in this one instance, God is saying, I desire to attribute those things to you, my people. That you can be people who live with this chesed, this loving kindness, this steadfast loyalty this covenant faithfulness. It's not really out of bounds for us to think of that as well as mercy. That mercy gets us there. Now, I don't know what kind of things mercy brings to mind for you. I don't know what you associate with mercy. Sometimes maybe you think of mercy as being the equivalent of compassion or pity. And that's not wrong. Those things do associate together. That a person who is merciful is a person who is compassionate. That when, let's take it back to the courtroom scene, that when the person who's pronounced as being guilty begs the judge for mercy, judge have mercy, what they're begging for is compassion, have pity, be lenient, give me clemency. All of those things may come to mind with mercy. And that's not wrong. That's not bad. Because there are times when, in order to maintain chesed, in order to maintain loving kindness, in order to maintain steadfast loyalty, in order to maintain covenant faithfulness, mercy is needed required. In fact, you can see this in the Old Testament that God maintains chesed with his people by acts of mercy. That we are people who sin. That we are people who fail. And the only way God is going to maintain his covenant with us, people who fail, is for God to be merciful. Otherwise, God could not keep his covenant without mercy. That's what mercy requires. Mercy requires that I look at the relationships around me, I look at the people around me, I I look at maybe whole groups of people around me, and I would have to ask, what act of mercy is required in order for me to maintain some loving kindness for me to remain steadfastly loyal. 
for me to show some measure of a covenant faithfulness? Are there moments when mercy is required in order to do that? So maybe that's a question that we need to leave this one with. A question that we need to think about as we think about how this works out and how this applies as a faith practice in my own life. In my world right now, who needs to be shown mercy? Yeah, they've failed. Yes, they've messed up. Yes, they've done something wrong. But the only path that brings me towards maintaining loving kindness and steadfast loyalty is going to be, on my end, an act of mercy. That I show mercy to do that. That's mercy. If you've ever read uh, the novel Les Miserables by Victor Hugo, Victor Hugo, or maybe you're actually more familiar with the musical version, the Broadway musical, which I would say, I think the Broadway musical really hits all the themes of the novel well. So if you only know the musical version, if you've never read the book, that's okay. You still get the ideas that come through that. I love this book because it, it brings these themes together in ways that maybe you don't often see in other places. The main character in Victor Hugo's Les Miserables is, is a man named Jean Valjean. And when Jean is a young boy, he gets arrested for stealing bread to help feed a starving family. And he's sentenced to 20 years in prison, a labor camp, because he stole bread to feed starving people. After 19 years, he's paroled. He's let go. But uh, this takes place in France during the time just before the French Revolution. So in a labor camp where what they did back then is they used an iron brand and they, they branded your skin to show that you were a prisoner. Right? So that's how they knew who the prisoners were. They had a scar on them that was branded on them. 19 years and Jean is released on parole, but he's got this prisoner brand on him. So everywhere he goes, people still know and recognize him as a criminal. Even though he's set free, he's still a criminal. And everyone treats him as a criminal and treats him as though he still is a criminal. Until one night, with nothing left to do, nowhere to go and nothing to eat, the local church bishop there in the little village in France where he's at comes out to him and says, come in here. I have a meal for you. I have a room where you can sleep tonight. I will show you the kindness, the mercy that no one else is. If you know the story, you know what happens, that Jean is actually overtaken by this idea of, if everyone thinks I'm a criminal, then that's what I'm going to be. And so in the middle of the night, he steals all the valuable silver out of the church, and he tries to make a break for it. But he gets caught. Police catch him, and they haul him back before the bishop. Say, all right, we caught this guy trying to steal this from you. And the bishop says, no, it was a gift. It wasn't, but an act of mercy. No, I meant to give that. In fact, you left so quickly, you forgot to take all of this too and gives him even more silver. An act of mercy in that moment. 
Jean Valjean is overcome by that. No one had ever shown him mercy like that before. And so as the story proceeds, there are examples in his life down the line where he gets to show acts of mercy to other people. What he ends up doing is taking all this silver and the only way he can start over is to break his parole because there's a parole officer who's essentially keeping an eye on him at all times. So he uh, wears clothes that cover his brand and he makes a dash to another town and he tries to start over with this vast wealth that was given to him and he builds a business and he becomes the mayor of this town. He's a respected individual and he's living honestly that way and there's examples where then he gets to show mercy. Someone who is wrongly and accused and then fired from his factory, a worker there, where he gets to step in and show an act of mercy when it's needed. And other examples like that. Because he had been shown mercy, he then recognizes how it's a pattern that he can show for others when it shows that way. So for you and I in our lives as people who have been shown mercy by God, people who have been given mercy for what we could never pay on our own, who is it in our world right now that needs to be shown mercy? But we can't stop there because we also have to talk about justice. We have to talk about justice because these two things fit together and they're taken together that way. So the word justice, now this is the Hebrew word mishpot, which is translated here in Micah as act justly. And it does in fact refer to in other places of scripture, justice, the law, commands or commandments, judge, judgment, all those things we associate with it. That this judgment, this law that comes from this gives us this idea of the righteousness God requires. Now think of it that way, because whatever our idea of justice is, I think maybe there's moments in our lives where we know when it's needed because we see it and it grinds against us. Right? It, it makes our hearts ache when we see injustice happen. When we see people who are maybe in a position of power or wealth or privilege who can get away with oppression upon others and those others are crying out for justice but they can't get it that tugs at us doesn't it it's just not fair it's not fair in the world where some people can get away with it and others cannot where is the justice i think we know that right we know what justice is because we know when injustice happens and it rightfully rightfully disturbs us that we want to see justice how much more for a perfect god a god of perfect righteousness a god who is never wrong and has no wrong at all how much more for a god like that to demand justice that there cannot be wrong in the world of a God who is perfectly righteous. That God is a God who demands justice. And that's what so many of those psalms that are lawsuits 
bring out that the psalmists there, the ones who write those psalms, the ones who are being oppressed and living in that area of suffering, that they are filing those lawsuits to say, God, you're supposed to be a God of justice. Where is the justice? Because that's who God is. And sometimes in order for God to maintain mishpot with his people requires acts of justice. Whatever is wrong has to be made right. The wrong of sin in our world must be accounted for and made right again in order for justice to take place. We cannot have a world where sin just runs unchecked. But justice needs to happen. And so God uses acts of justice in order to maintain his mishpat, his law, his commands, his judgments. Those things work together that way. And we see that in our world too. We see people who, just for whatever reason, cannot seem to get the justice that they deserve. And so maybe that question comes to mind for us. In my world right now, who are those people? Who are those people who are being denied justice? Where the things that are wrong need to be made right and what that looks like. Because we've got people like that in our world too. But I think the thing that makes these things so critical together is that we hold them together, justice and mercy, that we cannot have one without the other. You cannot have mercy without justice, and you cannot have justice without mercy. I think it's intentional that the chapter in our Faith Practices booklet puts these together in the same thing, as the same faith practice, just with two different sides, two different expressions. And it's not by accident then either that the prophet Micah, when he talks about this, puts these things together. You want to know what it means like to carefully and thoughtfully and wisely walk with God? Justice, mercy, together. Both of those things. That we cannot have one without the other. Because here's the reason why. If you have justice without mercy, I'm sorry, if you have mercy without justice, So if all I do is ever show mercy, but there's never any justice at all, then there's no check upon those who abuse the law and take advantage of others. There's no check or restraint for sin or evil in the world that way. But think about it the other way around, that if all I ever have is justice, if it's just all justice with no mercy at all, then there's no forgiveness. There's no second chance for those who've made mistakes and for those who've experienced failures. There's a point where both these things have to be held in attention. And it is attention, isn't it? Attention where they don't always know where to land in the right spot. You sort of have to have both at the same time of justice and mercy. In the story of Les Miserables, it's the parole officer, Inspector Javert, who uh, exemplifies justice and only justice. 
because Inspector Javert will not tolerate any misstep from the law whatsoever. And every punishment that is required needs to be imposed, according to the inspector. And Jean Valjean, the main character, he experiences that too. I mean, this inspector is after him all these years when he's on the run. And Jean, in his life, finds examples of being able to administer justice. He encounters an orphan girl who's taken in by a corrupt innkeeper and who's abused there, and, and he does what's necessary to free the orphan from that and to take this orphan in as his very own child. He brings justice in a situation where oppression had taken place. That John finds that it's during the time of the French Revolution that he joins up with the revolutionaries, the, the people who are sort of on the bottom of society, the poor and the oppressed, revolting against the elite, rich French bourgeoisie class for justice to take place. That this character of Jean Valjean in Les Miserables understands and learns living in a tension, a tension where both mercy and justice are required at the same time in order to live the way that God requires for us to live. So we see that God does this. We see that God is the one who perfectly embodies and demonstrates a balance of both justice and mercy in how God reveals himself to us. As a faith practice then, as something that gives us an example to work from, we see that these expressions of justice and mercy display what the love and the grace of God looks like. We know what the love and the grace of God is because of the way God expresses his justice and his mercy. And because of that, I'm left with a faith practice that I can grab onto. I'm left with a way that I can know how to live as a person of justice and mercy, that I become a better disciple of Jesus when I learn to act in the same patterns of justice and mercy which God has shown to me. That when I think of the ways God is just, and the ways that God is merciful, and the way that I've received that justice and I've received that mercy from God. It shows me the pattern, the pattern of how I can live that way so others may know and experience some of that justice and mercy as well and be drawn to God because of it. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of your word and the way that you show us who you are a God who is just, a God who is merciful. And Lord, we pray that as we think about what that means in our lives, may we first of all always remember and never forget that you are the God who shows us justice and you are the God who shows us mercy. And Lord, as we find examples and ways to do that in our world where we see that, guide us in those steps so that we may echo a justice and a mercy that shows your heart, your love, your grace, 
Help us to do that. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.